we are told that we can see Jesus with eyes of faith. And your picture of him may be a bit different than my picture or vision of him. But the point is, we want to have a vision of him. I want to make a comment before we start on our lesson today. I want to comment just briefly about Brother Sam's message to us yesterday about honoring our parents. I appreciated it very much. I wish I had had instruction like that when I was 16 to 18 to 20 years old. I was probably as rebellious as anyone here. I mean, I love my dad, but uh, when we're teenagers, why we have other ideas. We all do, especially men. I mean, we're, and after all, we're independent. That's the way we're supposed to be, to take care of our families. So it kind of goes to excess when we're teenagers. But I loved my dad and I respected him and grew to love him even more and respect him even more as I got older. But my point is this, I am thankful to God that I seized a couple of opportunities, I created those opportunities so that I could do this and I made sure that I thanked him and praised him for what he tried to do. I'm grateful to God for that. I had an opportunity to to do that several times. I have told my father-in-law the same thing. He's still living. I plan to do that again. So my point is in relating this, young man, young woman, don't wait too long. You may have conflicts with your parents. Almost all young people do. But you can draw them aside. You can tell them that you love them, and I know you do. You can tell them that you appreciate their efforts, what they're trying to do to to mold and shape your lives. You can certainly tell them something that you appreciate about them. And then get ready. Because you might see a tear in their eye. I recommend you do that. Make a resolve. It doesn't have to be immediately when you first get home, but think about it, will you please? Good morning to all of you. We're here once more to study the Word of God. We do trust that His Spirit is present with us. We'll have a short prayer in a few moments. For the past two days, we have been focusing our attention on Jesus is... We have talked about him being the way, the truth, and the life. We have also talked talked about him as being our mediator, our advocate, being translated, defined as also our defense attorney when it comes to a court of law, a time of judgment. He is our, the Holy Spirit is our comforter. And now then this morning we want to talk about Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Now, We're going to go through some Old Testament stuff first. 
I want to try to build a case to help you understand why this is necessary. And I want to emphasize as we go into this, the tiny word is our sacrifice, not was. It happened a long time ago, that's true. But Jesus Christ is our sacrifice today. It's still valid, still works for anybody who wants to come to Him in faith. He is our sacrifice. It's present tense, continuous action. True, He gave Himself as a sacrifice to God on, on our behalf. He gave Himself for us. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says, the just, Jesus Christ, for the unjust, you and I. That's the sacrifice that was made. But his sacrifice, as we said, is still valid, it's still effective, it's still in force today. Now, perhaps in that short introduction, I'm getting ahead of, of myself, but I believe it is important today to kind of know where we are headed and then we're going to take a journey to get there. So we're going to try to paint a picture for you of what a sacrifice is all about and why it's necessary. That full scripture, that full verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 reads, For Christ also hath suffered for us, and here it is, the just for the unjust, and here is the reason why, that He might bring us to God. That's why he went through that awful agony, that he might bring you and I to God. It was the way for him to provide an avenue for us to approach a holy God. Then it says, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, made alive in the spirit. That's it. That's Jesus Christ. That's his suffering and his death that he endured to bring us to God and give us new life in him. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, we'll read about four verses as a basis for what we want to talk about today. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, I think that I will probably do most of the reading today, not that I don't appreciate you young men and women reading, but many times I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of want to comment a little bit as we go on some of this to try to clarify some things. So Hebrews chapter 9, Verse 11 says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer Sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. Here's a question. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, of, spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Maybe we can answer that question in a little while. May we bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we open your word. We accept the responsibility for teaching it. And we ask, Father, that you will make it alive in our hearts, in our spirits. We ask that you would prompt us, that we would say only the truth. We have no, I, no inclination, no desire whatsoever to say anything that is not according to your word. So help us to do 
your will, Father. And we pray that this will become very real to these young men and women here. Help them to face the challenges and the other conflicts in life. Those that who, who are willing to refute your word and give them ready answers and ready tongues to respond to the naysayers. Go with us, Father. Help us each day of our lives so we can always uphold thy word and thy will in our lives. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to start this morning's session with two questions. The first question is, what is a sacrifice? And the second question I will deal with was, why do we need one? And perhaps that question would be better phrased if we would say, why does God require one? So we have two questions before us. First of all, what is a sacrifice? And then the second question is, why does God require one? I think it's essential that we understand the basis of this and what's behind it all so that we understand why it is that Jesus Christ went to the cross to shed His blood to atone for our sins. So first of all, what is a sacrifice? If you go to Webster, Webster is going to tell you, says it's something of value, and there are three points here. It's something of value and given up a symbolic offering to God. It's something of value, something that you give up. It's a symbolic offering to God. A symbol is representative of something else, something that must be not necessarily equal value. In many cases, it can't be of equal value, but at least it has to be valuable. Illustrate. It's very homely, but you can't expect to trade a bucket of dirt for a brand new pickup. It don't work that way. You have to have something that's valuable to do that. If you give up a bucket of dirt, you haven't given up anything. It's plentiful out there. So it has to be something that's of value. So when we think about this, a sacrifice is something of value, something that's given up, a symbolic offering to God. So the question is, is God just being mean? Is he just flexing his muscles to show us that he's in charge? He can demand that we do something and, well, we've got to do it. No, that's not it at all. God prefers dedication over sacrifice every time. He would rather have dedicated lives to him than sacrifice that has to be given up. But the problem is there is a vast gulf between His holiness and our disobedience, our rebellion against Him. This is a giant chasm that we can't jump over, we can't fly over, we can't get over this chasm. It's too big for us. Yet God created us to fellowship with Him. He desires to have a close and intimate relationship and fellowship with Him. Above all things, that's, that, that's why he went to all the trauma of the cross, to restore that. But there is a problem here that we're trying to overcome. He is perfect. We are soiled. We are miserable, wretched creatures with stains of sin on us and in us. And even so, in that condition, God still loves us. Now, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing how God still loves all of us 
even when we're dirty. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up and then come to him in faith. He accepted us the way we were. So isn't it amazing? He still loves us. He wants that original sweet fellowship restored that he had with Adam and Eve in the garden before they transgressed against him. So now then, we are confronted with the problem that we can't solve. Our very best efforts don't even come close to making us a god. Isaiah tells us very plainly in chapter 64, verse 6, that all of our righteousnesses, all of our good deeds, all of our best works, all of our whatever merits we may have, all of those fall dreadfully short because of the same as filthy rags. And when you know what that is, that is certainly not a suitable offering to present to a holy God in an effort to win his approval or his blessing. It won't work. So while we have a problem, so does God. God has a problem. The problem is, we'll put it in question form, how does he bridge the gap between us so that we can be restored into that fellowship with this holy God? You know, I'm glad you asked that question because I think we can find the answer. That's what we want to do today. Let's see what we can find in the word of God. I don't believe that I need to stand here this morning and try to prove to you the holiness or the perfection of our God. <clears throat> that has already been very clearly established in his word from lid to lid. We read about his mighty acts of creation, his infinite power in maintaining order in this vast universe, a part of which we are a part of. Suffice it to say, God is creator and sustainer of all things. He is sovereign and supreme. He is not being questioned today. We are not questioning him. We are not putting him on trial. His name, his character, his credentials are impeccable. They're all of them, simply beyond question or dispute. Now I want to give you just a, a very homely illustration. I think you'll identify with it. And I'm trying to bridge between here about us and God. So I'm going to say, picture yourself when you would encounter a dirty, smelly, vile street person, and you would attempt to share the gospel with them. There is something invisible between the two of you. You can share with that person. I may say him just because of habit, but you can share with that person. You can express concern for them. You can pray with them. You can do all of those things, but it's pretty difficult to get real close to them, to hug them and embrace them. And you know why? They're smelly. They're dirty. And, and you, don't want to, you don't want to get involved there. You can, you can share your love for them. You can say, I'm going to buy you some new clothes. I'm going to give you some food. I'm going to pray with you. But until they accept the terms that you give, it's pretty hard to have the same values. It's really not close fellowship with that person until you can both speak the same language of faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now that's how it is. I use that because that's how it is between God and us. Yes, He loved us and He saved us while we were dirty. I agree. And He saved us with His own precious blood. He saved us while we were yet in our sins. But until we confess our faith in Him and invite Him into our hearts, our lives, it is then that He washes us clean with His blood and we become, become clean creatures in His sight. He washes us in His blood and it is then that we can have that close fellowship. We can embrace Him. He will embrace us. Until that, it's not an intimate fellowship. It's kind of an arm's length. And there are people who have an arm's length relationship with God. We want close fellowship. Again, back to one of the first things that Pete said when we started this series. We, he wants us to know Him. And one of the ways you get to know people is give them a hug. And I mean that in the right sense. Sometimes hugs speak louder than words in many cases. So now, I think we have, we've told you what a sacrifice is, what it requires, and we have a partial answer to the other question about why does God require a sacrifice. We've established it's not because He's mean, it's not because of anything like that, but it is because He is holy. He is precise. He is absolute in what he wants from his people. There aren't any shortcuts, any quick ways to get to God. It must be in his way. When Cain slew his brother Abel, God says in Genesis chapter 4, and these are the words, he says, The voice of thy brother's blood crieth to me from the ground. Well, that's an interesting phrase to me. Have you ever heard blood cry? Have you ever heard it make an audible sound? Nobody has. But blood speaks to God. He has given life in the blood, and we'll cover more of that. So, so the slain person's blood cried to God from the ground. God has always placed great significance and great value on blood because that is life. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 tells us the life is in the blood. We will go into that a, more, a little more later, but I'm trying to give us a prelude here. So what we're saying is, since the life is in the blood, when there's no blood, there's no life. Further, God has declared in Ezekiel chapter 18, birth, both verses 4 and verse 20, He states it two times, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, God hasn't made these decrees on a lark. He has a plan. He has said, told us clearly already that the life is in the blood. And then he has told us that the soul that sins, it's going to die. And those things have never been rescinded. It's still valid today. He hasn't changed the scale in any way. So the soul that sins, it shall die. So the farther we go into this problem that we're trying to describe this morning, the farther we get into it, it gets bigger all the time. We have a dilemma on our hands. How are we going to have fellowship with this holy God? There is still that great chasm between sinful man and holy God. God is holy. We are not. Blood is not just a representation of life. Blood is life. It gives life. 
And God has declared, like we said, those who sin must die, Ezekiel 18. So that being the case, if we stop right there, we are all dead. We may be sitting here breathing, but spiritually, apart from Christ, apart from the shed blood of, of a sacrifice here along the way, we're dead creatures. Unless something can be done to remove our sin, wash us clean, and make us acceptable to God. In the Old Testament, God chose to use the blood of animals to cover, cover the sins of man and to restore fellowship once again between God and that individual. Now, I want to point out here, when that happened, that was not a close, not an intimate fellowship like we have today with, with our Savior Christ. That was not an intimate fellowship, but it was fellowship. Intimacy comes later in the new covenant, the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. And we can have that intimate fellowship. But just for clarification, this is why the, the, one of the reasons why the covenant of grace is so much better than the covenant of law. We can have that close and intimate relationship with our Savior. And so the sacrifice of animals, different animals for different kinds of sins, it was, it was a rather complex system, but it had a purpose. And, and it, that whole system did two things. Number one, the blood of animals covered the sin of the individual for a year. Covered it. Didn't remove it, just covered it so that God didn't have to look at it. Secondly, the sacrifice was a life for a life. You know the story. You couldn't take a sheaf of wheat and offer that as a sacrifice for a serious crime. It took a life for a life. Remember what we said early on? A sacrifice has to have value. It has to be something that's given up. And it has to have a symbolic value. Now then, the full rendering of that verse in Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. And here it is, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So now, if you hopefully follow our line of reasoning here and, and, and the, the pattern in the word, now then, God has bridged the gap between himself and man, but he is also still true to his word in that shedding of blood and death is the penalty for sin. But he has provided a substitute in the form of an animal, shedding their blood, giving their life. A substitute has been provided so that the sinner in the old covenant could, could not only stay alive having committed a sin against God, but they could now then have that fellowship with God, a little more remote than what we know, but they still had fellowship with God. And so the process, the animal sacrifice continued for 3,500, 4,000 years, whatever period of time it was. Countless thousands of, of innocent animals were required to shed their blood and, and, and gave their life so that people who had sinned against this holy God so that those people could live. The blood of animals, again, could not remove sins, 
but it did cover their sin so that God could see that person through the filter of the shed blood. Important to know, God actually detested the loss of life and the shedding of the blood until the smoke of sacrifices actually became a stench in his nostrils. He didn't like that. Remember we said early on, God would rather have dedication of your life than a sacrifice. He prefers that above all. So he wasn't doing this because he liked it or he loved it or appreciated it. He was simply doing it to try to provide a way of redemption for man. But he had a bigger picture, and we want to get into that. That's, that's, we're just laying the background here. So he had, some people would say, well, and I went through this, I hadn't thought this out all the way, but not too long ago I talked about this in another venue. And, and God had to, he did this so that he could prove to man that man was not able to follow a list of rules. No matter how hard we try, we simply cannot be good enough, we cannot do good enough to enter into God's presence under our own merits. God started out a first few years, a man's conscience. Let conscience be your guide. Well, that didn't work. And so then he brought in the law. And we're, that we talk about law, old covenant, same thing. He brought in the law with all of its tedium written down in here. So A, B, C, ad infinitum, this law that it took to be holy and, and approach God. And somebody, somebody would say, well, why did he do that? He did that because if he had not done that, we come down to the final gate at the end of our life and we somebody would surely approach God and say but if you had only given me a list if you had only given me a list of things to do I could have met that list and I could have been I could have been in heaven with you God says I did that it didn't work you cannot follow a list close enough because God is absolutely holy so he brought the law and he gave man 3500 years to try to make it work didn't work so he had to bring in the new covenant. So there had to be a sacrifice made under the old covenant of law. It was animal sacrifice. Now there's another sacrifice under the new covenant of grace. God very carefully, very purposefully, has shown us in both the Old and the New Testaments that while we are not deserving of it, he alone will forgive our sins and give us new life in Him when we accept His provision for sin and life eternal. Now then, I would like, with that as background, I would like to show you in the Old Testament how God began to foreshadow the coming of Messiah, the Christ. Do you know what Christ means? Anybody? Anointed, anointed one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, anointed one, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son who would ultimately become the sin bearer of whosoever will, wheresoever you are, when they come to him in faith and repentance, willing to follow after this God. Turn to Exodus chapter 12, please, if you will. <clears throat> This chapter, I'm going to give you a short preview, and then we're going to kind of go down through a few verses. I want to, I want to paint a picture for you, if I can. Um, in this chapter, God gives instructions to the children of Israel as they're 
in the wilderness, wandering around. He's going to tell them how to observe. Well, actually, it's before they get into the wilderness. They're in the land of Egypt. He gives them instructions how to observe the Passover as the death angel is going to pass over the land, is going to visit the land of Egypt. And the purpose for the, for the death angel coming into the land of Egypt was simply to break the spirit of Pharaoh so that he would then finally let the children of Israel go. You remember all the plagues? that God brought to happen and Pharaoh's heart was hardened one time after another and you read through, the, through those things and you say, how can anybody be that obstinate to avoid this? But one after another, he says, you know, just let God have his way. So finally God broke his spirit completely with the death angel. But at the same time, this Passover is a prefigure of Christ, our Passover. And I want, that's what I want to try to... I'm transitioning now from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. This is the way it works. He tells... Uh, God tells the people to choose a lamb for a sacrifice. We're going to read that. And then apply its blood to the doorposts and the lintel, the part overhead, so that the death angel will, in fact, pass over the firstborn in family and they will live. Without that blood on the doorpost, that firstborn is going to die. Now, those people in that day had no idea of the prophetic significance for us. All they knew was what they had, and this is their plate at the time, and they were going to do it. But they didn't realize that they, it had prophetic significance for centuries on down the road. But we today can read this with absolute clarity and understanding of what God was doing. He was... He was working his way through this so that you and I could have redemption. So this is a prefigure of the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. So now then we're going to look at a few verses in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, probably look at the first 14 verses and make a few comments as we go. I don't want to get too tedious in this, but there are some facts here we want to consider. Exodus 12, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak, you unto, speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man, notice, a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. I have a reason for emphasizing that. Let's go on. Verse 4 says, And if the household be too little for the lamb, it has changed. It's not just a lamb and a flock. It has now become your lamb. It's, got the, it's a definite article. It's, it's, if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls, Every man according to his eating, and shall make your count for the lamb. What does it say now? Your lamb. Now then, this lamb that was out in the flock, you chose one, and it has now, in a very short time, become your personal lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood, strike it on the two side posts, on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, 
Roast it with fire, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, with his head and with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. Now we're going to stop for a moment. I want to make a couple of comparisons. You already know about a lamb, the lamb, your lamb. Is Jesus Christ just a lamb? No. Is he the lamb? Yes. But is he your lamb? Yes. Very definite connection there. Now he tells us further in this, and, and we're thinking about the pictures of Jesus Christ as we read this, prefigure of all of that. It was verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. There's a picture of Jesus Christ. Without blemish. He was the spotless, the sinless, the perfect Son of God. This had to be a perfect natural lamb as a prefigure of the perfect Christ. The second point is, it was a male of the first year. Signifying that this was a young lamb cut off in the very slain, in the very prime of his life. And Jesus Christ was a young man. He was slain in the very prime of his life. His life was cut short. The blood had to be applied on a specific place that had to go on the sides of the door and over the head. And that was the only thing that allowed, that permitted the death angel to pass over that house, lest if they had no blood on the doorpost and the lintel, the firstborn would die, man or animal. And so the blood atones for sin. What, do, what is it that atones for your sin and mine? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And it has to be applied. And he's the one that applies it. The flesh was roasted. I believe that's, that there would be a lot of analogies here, typologies and all that. Maybe not everybody would agree, but I believe the, the flesh being roasted is a picture of God's wrath against sin. It brings out the wrath of God. What is worse in destruction than, than, than fire? Fire does a lot of destruction. Uh, it had to be eaten with bitter herbs. Doesn't really sound like a pleasant meal, but it's a reminder to those people then that God was going to deliver them from the bitterness of slavery and bondage. It's a reminder to you and I that God delivers us from the bitterness of sin and slavery, to bondage to sin. It's a reminder of all of those things. It's a beautiful picture of all of that. There would be, there would be more things that we could talk about in, in that light, but you've got the idea. We don't want to belabor all of that. When we go to the rest of the, this chapter in Exodus 12, we find out that the rest of the chapter tells us that there was great anguish in the land. There was distress. There was chaos with all the death, with the death of all the firstborn of the Egyptian children or families. And whether it was man or animal, the firstborn was lying dead. Can you imagine the carnage laying around the next morning? But the Israelites who had killed the land and applied the blood were all whole. There wasn't any problem in the Israelite camp. There weren't any deaths there. God was absolutely true to His Word. So now I have a question for you. 
the question would be like this. We're going to make a statement and then make, give you a question. So, if God was faithful to His promise in saving the firstborn by applying the blood of the Lamb in, as we have read this account in Exodus, or most of it anyway, if God was faithful in that as He prescribed, question is, do you think He will be faithful in His promise of saving us by the blood of Jesus Christ? Altogether, absolutely. The evidence is there. He has the power. He can do it. He will do it. On a prophetic note, the writer of Psalm 103, verses 10 through 13, wrote like this. Verse 4. Well, no, no. Verse 10 says, For he hath dealt with us. Start, um, excuse me, start over. For he hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. Notice this. As far as the east is from the west. How far is that? You can go east from here, whichever way that is. I'll say that's east. Okay, You can go east, and so help me, you can go all the way around the world, and you're still going east. You'll never catch up with the West. In the same way, when God takes care of our sins, it's gone. You can't catch up with it again. As far as the East is from the West, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. There is an Old Testament picture of the love and the mercy and the grace of our God. So now, with all of that as background, and I hope I haven't been too laborious, but I felt it was necessary, you know all of this, but I wanted to kind of draw it together. We're supposed to be answering the question, why is Jesus Christ the perfect sacrifice? That's where we're going. So with all that as background, we're now going to ask another question. And we're going to try to answer this question. Why is Jesus Christ a perfect sacrifice? There are actually lots of New Testament scriptures. We could get pretty tedious. We don't want to do that. We're only going to look at a few. So if you will go to Romans chapter 3. I want to look at a few scriptures there. Romans 3. <clears throat> We are going to focus for a little bit on verses 21 through 26. The first part of this chapter in Romans 3, Paul uses Old Testament scriptures to prove to us that we are all sinners and we need a Savior. Um, I have heard it said before that verses, we're in chapter 3 of Romans, verses 9 through 19, they're about the longest sewer in the world. The, that's the despicable condition of mankind apart from a saving grace of Jesus Christ. There's none righteous. No, not one. And it goes on and on and on. All of those Old Testament quotations of, of how bad we are. And so we, all, we, need, we need a Savior. Now, knowing that, let's look at verse 21 and kind of work our way down through this. Verse 21 says, But now, 
Now this was written a couple of thousand years ago, folks, and it said, but now. And here we are, 2017, but now. It's still the same thing. But now the righteousness of God without the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is manifested, being witnessed or testified to by the law and by the prophets. And so very subtly, usually, sometimes rather flagrantly, the law and the prophets were looking ahead to this age of grace, trying to get there, couldn't make it, but it was, but it's pointing the way of grace that was going to come under the new covenant. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, that's what it was talking about, looking forward to, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, King James says, that's okay, faith in Jesus Christ is okay, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. That tells us it makes no difference, red and yellow, black and white, Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, whatever. The blood of Christ is available for human beings. There's no, God has no favorites. Yes, he has a chosen people, the Jews, but God does not say, no, 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 this doesn't apply to you. Reason is, 23, for all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Now there's a universal need for everyone. That's what it's telling us. <clears throat> Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, an appeasement of divine wrath. That's what a propitiation is. It's the propitiation satisfied the wrath of God. Remember the substitute. Remember the sacrifice. It all fits together here. When God, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, in Jesus' blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The forbearance of God was so great that all He had to do was look at you and I or look away maybe, but He could snuff us out that quick. But His forbearance is, no, 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 I'm going to give Him another chance. I'm going to give Him another chance. God is... Forbearing, he is long suffering to usward. Verse 26 To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, not ours, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God is both just. He has declared the soul that sinneth it shall die. And he has met that obligation by offering a substitute for that. So he is just. And now then he can also, since the death of his son on the cross of Calvary shed his blood, he can also justify us. He is, the ju he is just and the justifier of all who believe in Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, write it down if you want. In your quiet times, read chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Romans along these lines about God being the justifier, justifying us. We are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. And just so we understand where we're coming from here, justification is a legal term. And it simply means declared righteous. We're not righteous, but it means God has declared us to be righteous and we have been pronounced innocent. We have been acquitted from the curse of the law. So God has declared us righteous and he considers us to be righteous through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what you'll find out in Romans chapter four. 
Romans chapter 5 tells us about the results of this justification, how it's going to affect us in our daily lives and as we, as we go forth from here, our daily walk and our daily work. When we know we're justified in the sight of God, we have been declared righteous. It does not give us a haughty spirit. It humbles us that God would actually do that for me, a sinner. Now we want to go to Hebrews chapter 9. And we want to finish up there. We are going to uh, move as quickly as we can. I think we'll be all right here. Hebrews chapter 9. Um, we are going to look at several verses. I really do believe that we understand and we, we universally believe in God's plan of sacrifice and substitute thus far. But when we, when we look at this, Hebrews 9 just kind of puts the icing on the cake. And, and I want to tell you what I mean by that as we go through it. The new covenant does far and away everything that the old covenant could not. And there is a tremendous blessing in all of this. I want to try to point it out to you when we get there. So we're going to look at this uh, Hebrews chapter 9. And, and, and what this chapter does, it contrasts the old and the new covenants. I think we have a reasonable understanding of the old covenant, what it was all about. So now let's see if we can, to some degree anyway, how much better the new covenant is in Christ Jesus. It goes far beyond what the old covenant could ever do by using the blood of animals. And I don't know, I, I want to intersect, interject this someplace, and so I'm going to do it right now. Maybe this is the time. Keep in mind, please, God's plan of salvation has always been by grace through faith. Old Testament, New Testament alike. But there is a difference. Under the old covenant, under the law, it was salvation by grace through faith in keeping the works of the law and all of the tedium that was involved. And it was difficult, impossible really. But salvation by grace through faith in keeping the law. Today, the gospel of grace, it's salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He has done it all. And it's up to us to believe and receive and follow Him. So now then, I want to focus on a few verses in Hebrews chapter 9 as we bring this finally to a close. I'm going to just say that verses 1 through 5, I don't think we'll read them, but they describe the tabernacle in the wilderness. They describe the sanctuary. They describe the Holy of Holies. They, it, it, it describes all the furniture, the things that were in there. And there is a significance for every single one of those objects. It's not our point here to make any, any uh, explanation about those. But all of the things you read in there in the first five verses had a purpose. God doesn't do something like that just to put a desk over here. No, He has a reason for it. And so it's up to us to find out that reason. Verses 6 and 10, through 10 then, I want us to notice that as you read through these, it, it tells us that Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, but the, in those days the high priest went into the Holy of Holies only once a year. One time a year, and he could only do that under certain strict 
guidelines that God had prescribed for him, because if he broke that, he himself could be slain while he was standing in there, trying to minister to the needs of, of all the people. So the, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies only once a year with blood to offer for himself and for the people. And verse 9, I want to read that. This was a figure for the time when when pre then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Okay, so the priest did everything he could. He offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people, but he could not do anything about their conscience. The people would still carry the guilt of their sin with them. They could be restored back into this semi relationship, fellowship with God, but they still carried the guilt on their conscience. It only covered the sin, it didn't remove it, and they had, still had a guilty conscience for offending God. That was the best that, that could happen under the Old Covenant. Now, verses 11 through 12. <clears throat> but Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. I'm going to stop there right, for just a moment. Jesus Christ is the high priest of a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands. Do you know what that's saying? Do you know what the perfect tabernacle is that's not made with hands? That's you. And that's me. We were not made with hands. God made us. All the other tabernacles were structures. Whatever they were, wood, stone, whatever, they were made with hands. But God has made a new tabernacle. That's you and I, and His Holy Spirit dwells within us ever since the day of Pentecost. We are the tabernacle. We are the dwelling place of God today. Does that make you boast or does it make you humble? Wow, God dwells in me. I had better be careful how I portray myself to the world around. God is, um, and so we are the dwelling place for God's spirit. Verse 11, now we go to verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You remember, you've probably heard me say it before that the death on the cross was so traumatic, so horrible, God's never going to do it again. He don't have to do it again. He won't go there. It was too awful to repeat again. And besides that, it was good enough. It's efficacious for all, for whosoever will, one time. It's one and done. Don't have to do that again. Verses 13 and 14. For if, now he's going to ask a question here. First of all, the, the, verse 13 is a statement, and then he's setting us up for a question in verse 14. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, pause, it did. It did exactly what he wanted it to do. It worked. It sanctified the flesh. Not a problem there, but this is the tremendous part. Verse 14 Oh, he says, I'm going to ask you a question now. If that worked under the Old Covenant, I want to know how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, 
Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Beloved, we can not only have freedom from, from the condemnation of sin, we can have a good conscience before God. Now that doesn't mean we just go out here and sin because we know God's going to forgive us. That's license. We're not interested in going there. But when we repent to God for our sins, He says, okay. He forgives us. He wipes the slate clean. The Bible said, as far as the east is from the west. We're thankful for that. The blood of animals, bulls and goats, could only purify the flesh for a period of time, a year. Then they had to go through the process again and again and again. But Jesus Christ gave His life. He shed His precious blood on the cross once for all men and for all time. He'll never do it again. It doesn't just remove, it cover our sin, it removes it forever. And besides that, it purges our own conscience. So now we are set free from dead works. Our very best efforts, which are nothing more than filthy rags. Because Jesus Christ has cleansed us and made us new creatures in Him. Notice please, if you will, the Trinity that you see present in verse 14. And I have a reason for going here and then we're going to bring it to a close. How much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit purge himself without spot to God? All three persons of the Godhead are there. Now my reason for pointing that out is because it took the united power of the Godhead to, to, to save us, to, to, to bring about our redemption. And I'm not trying to take this away from the Lord Jesus, not for a minute, but please follow me through in, in all of this. I believe it took the united power and certainly the agreement of the Godhead to bring out our redemption. And when they did, they brought Satan down and our God will be victorious forever. When... Jesus died on the cross, there was a horrific battle in the spirit world. Satan didn't take kindly to that. He knew what was happening and he thought for a while that he was victorious when he put Christ in the grave. We know differently. He knows differently now. But listen to what the Bible tells us about the, the, the redemption process, the act of our redemption, when, when God came down in the person of Jesus Christ to save us. I want you can write these down. I don't think we'll turn to them. You can write these down and look at them a little later. Psalm 8 verse 3 tells us that creation was nothing more than just finger work of God. It says, "When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast created," that's telling us that this was very easy for God to do to build this vast universe. He spoke it into existence and he used his fingers a little bit and it's done. But our redemption required the strength of his right arm. And the right arm is always the, the, the significant of power. Okay? Look at what Isaiah 52.10 says. The Lord made bare his holy arm. He rolled up his sleeve, if you will. He rolled up his sleeve in the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God had to use His right arm 
His arm of power to bring about our redemption. Isaiah 53.1, who hath believed our report? He's asking a question. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Well, it's to us. Do you believe it? Yes, we do. Isaiah 59, verse 16. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, unto you and I, and his righteousness, it sustained him. Our redemption was a tremendous feat. And it took the right hand of God to bring it into existence for you and I. When I think about that and how simple the Bible portrays him creating all of this and then our redemption required his power. Yes, it's a big deal. Verse 15 and then we're going to close. And for this cause, for, and I'm going to say here, this cause, what is he talking about this cause? Well, we have to refer to the verses prior to this, but part of the cause is that we have been freed from the penalty of our sins, past tense. We are free from the power of sins, present tense. We shall be free from the very presence of sin, future tense. That's what this all comes together being. It's, it's, it's for all time, for all men. He is, and for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament. We read this yesterday, that by means of death and for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. You and I have that promise of eternal inheritance. Plainly, Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And Jesus Christ is there to make sure that happens. Remember yesterday we said he was the arbiter of his last will and testament. There is no other time when somebody can write out a last will and testament and die and then come back and make sure that it's fulfilled. That doesn't happen. But it did in Jesus Christ's case. He is arbiting his own last will and testament. We could go to verses 22 to 28. I'm going to encourage you to read those. I'm simply going to close with verse 28. So Christ was offered, once offered, to bear the sins of many, that's you and I, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. My dearly beloved, Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. He was ordained by the Father to do exactly what He did. And the Father accepted all of that. And He will see to it that we are safely home.